You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I'll invite you to return to Psalm 6. Psalm 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame moment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these words which you've recorded, that you have given to us a great treasury of of wisdom and comfort that leads us, O Father. And Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to bless us by teaching us from your word, even speaking to our hearts this morning through your word. Father, we look to you, O Lord, for this instruction. We look to you, O Lord, as the one who must give us uh, instruction, or we will not have it. So, Father, in short, what we're saying is we are depending upon you, Father. We're leaning on you. Teach us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Don't have to really make a lot of noise over this point. I mean, life in a fallen world is not always easy, is it? Um, I hardly needs any commentary whatsoever. And uh, in the life of a believer, uh, we may eventually find ourselves, or may already have found ourselves in situations that are uh, so dire that um, sometimes it, it, it brings us about as low as we can possibly go. In fact, there's an old blues song that we used to play, and I always enjoyed playing it. Um, it's called I'm Tore Down. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that song, but first, first um version of it I ever heard was performed by Eric Clapton, but I later went back and found out where it come from and listened to the old blues musicians. One was Freddie King, and he used to play that song with such passion. He'd say, I'm tore down, would be the first line, almost level with the ground. And it really describes very graphically that song. And one thing about blues music, the best of the blues music, is that it really does speak about the problems and the trials of life. Um, uh, I'm tore down, almost level with the ground. It's hard for me to not think of that song as I uh, read this. We're going to be looking at seven verses here. But before we do, I kind of want to give you an idea of the direction we're going to be going here. Um, uh, More than 50 years ago, one Old Testament scholar put it this way, Derek Kidner, in his preface to... Uh, Psalm 6, he wrote these words, whatever the original circumstances, the song, that is Psalm 6, Psalm 6 gives words to those 
who scarcely have the heart to pray and brings them within sight of victory. Some of us maybe have been brought that low where it's a struggle to pray. And the difficulty is it's when you need prayer the most. And we can make application before we've even started. Think about how loving, you know, my pastoral prayer, I, 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 I wanted to thank God for giving us grace in ways that we don't even realize we've had grace. And here's one I think. You know, I didn't think of this until just this moment, but he has given us Psalm 6 for situations that may be in our future and we don't even know we need Psalm 6. So he's given us a blessing and he's blessed us in a way that we're not even aware of. How many other times has God blessed us, even this morning and even today, in ways that we're not even aware of how he's blessed us? Our God is abundantly good. Psalm 6 gives us words when we don't have the heart to pray or when there are no words to pray. Um, if you look at the title, let's start with the title. We'll work, really. We're going to take the psalm in two, two parts, verses 1 through 7 in one part, verses 8 through 10 in another part. But let's look at this title. You'll notice that it's given to the choir master. We've been over this before. That means that not only do we have a prayer here, a, a divinely inspired prayer here, where a psalmist, David in this case, is praying to the Lord, words that are given to him from the Lord, but it's also given to be to the choir master so that it can be sung, so that we can join in in returning these words that have been given to us from the Lord, that we might return these words to the Lord. Did you get all of that? Lord gives us the words so that we can give them back to him. Um, quite amazing. It's meant to be sung as we sing these words, this morning as we focus on these words and as we, as we contemplating these words, we're digesting these words. Someone might be saying, you know, I mean, I'm not really going through a hard time right now. You're talking about a hard time. You know, maybe I can put it in park and just relax this morning. No, actually, we need to prepare for hard times when we're in good times. We need to do the training right now. If everything is going well in our lives, praise be to God, everything's going well. But if you're following Christ through the, across the grain of this fallen world, it isn't always going to be that way. And we need to train now for those times. Some of us are going through a tough time right now. And hopefully these words will, will comfort us. But I think just the words to the choir master should comfort us. Because God has given us this word to be a bomb, if you will. Not a bomb, B-O-M-B, but a B-A-L-M. I want to be careful there. I don't want anyone to think that God's given us a bomb. He's not trying to blow us up. He's trying to comfort us uh, with these words. And he's given it to the choir master so that we could sing. Notice it says, with stringed instruments, according to the shamaneth. Now, what in the world is the Sheminith? I don't know what the Sheminith is. And you remember in previous uh, studies, I've talked about some of the titles and the obscure words that are in the titles. And sometimes the translators, they don't even attempt to translate the words. They just give you the Hebrew. And this is one of those, those cases. If you have an ESV open, you'll notice there's a footnote. You go down to the footnote and it says probably a musical or liturgical term. We know, we have good reason to believe that all the way back, think like 200 BC, when the Greek translators are translating the Hebrew into uh, Greek, that these words were already obscure then. 
And this need not worry us. Um, you can go through all these margin notes all the way through your Bible, and you can be happy to discover that it doesn't compromise any major doctrine of the Christian faith. This is nothing that should rattle us. To the contrary, perhaps God in his, in his divine wisdom has enabled some of the meanings of these words to be lost so that we could see that these words are very old. That's been suggested by many. Spurgeon was one who suggested that, not quite in those exact words. What Spurgeon said about this was that it reminds us of the great antiquity of the psalm. Now, if David wrote it, we're thinking like 3,000 years ago if he wrote this. Now, think how many generations have found comfort from Psalm 6 since it was penned 3,000 years ago. Here we are in Little Chester, uh, and we stand to be comforted by these words as well. Praise be to God. The Sheminith, we could take a crack at it. It probably means eighth. It could be referring to the, the type of tune that was to be sung, the octave, perhaps. It could refer to a particular instrument that had eight strings. I mean, there's, this is all, I won't say it's just empty conjecture. I think it is somewhat educated, uh, but it's still conjecture, nevertheless. Uh, we, we don't know. Um, and to the title, A Psalm of David, most natural way to take this is that this psalm was written by David. Uh, as Derek Kidner points out, the original circumstances are lost to us. We do not know what they were. It could be David's flight from Absalom. That's possible. That's possible. But we don't know. David found himself in many situations that this could describe throughout his life. Uh, we'll say more about that as we go along. But look at verse 1. We need to spend a good bit of time here in verse 1. First of all, uh, David is calling out to the Lord. Notice all the letters are capitalized. And what does that mean, anybody? Yahweh's being translated, right? And what's significant about that? Yahweh, that's the name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. And it's the name that we get I am from. You know, you've heard of God called the great I am. Uh, when you see in your Bibles, L-O-R-D in capital letters like that, um, it's the great I am that's in view here. And David is calling out, calling out to the great I am. But more importantly here, he's calling out to the God of the covenant. This is covenantal language right from the get-go. And as we're going to see, it, 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 it continues to be covenantal language. This is the covenantal name. And David says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, one thing I want to point out here pretty quickly is, David is not saying, Lord, rebuke me not, nor discipline me. In other words, he doesn't stop. He doesn't say, rebuke me not, stop, nor discipline me, stop. Now, what's so important about that? David doesn't have his arms out like this against the Lord's discipline. He doesn't have his arms stretched out like this against the Lord's uh, rebuking. It's important for us to see this because David, David is not rejecting the rebuke of the Lord. He's not rejecting the discipline of the Lord. In fact, David would know that the discipline of the Lord is something that is healthy. We do well to not be without it. And that's why we read, if you, if you keep your place in Psalm 6, let's take another look at Hebrews 12, which we read from in the opening of our service. This is a good reminder for us 
If you go back to Hebrews 12, and especially if you look at verse 5, while you're turning there, I'll go ahead and start reading, where the author to the letter to the Hebrews says to his readers, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now, this could also mean daughters, too, as sons and daughters. My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Notice it says reproval, discipline in the same verse right there. Rebuke, discipline. We're not to be weary of this. Why? Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. Now, verse 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is really wise for us, especially young parents. You know, there is a lack of discipline across our land, something ferocious, because parents want to be buddies with their kids. Your children do not need you to be buddies with them. They need you to be mom and dad. I mean, we've got to be mom and dad. We've got to be grandma and granddad. It's so important. The time will come when you can, you can be friends, but not in a developmental period. We've got to be parents. We've got to be parents. And this discipline is really part of that, um, of that development. It's a needful thing. Um, verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? We need, this. We need to shout this from the housetops. Because some people got in their minds that discipline little junior is mean. or it's, If it's done in a cruel way, it is. But that's not what's in view here. What's in view here is chastisement from a, a loving uh, parent is what's in view here. It's that loving chastisement. We're going to get to more of that here in a moment. But verse 8, if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now, the assumption here is that the we are those who have been raised in a home where they had the blessing of loving discipline. Obviously, not everyone comes from that kind of a home. Some of us have been exposed to a lot of abusive things. It's easy to tell the difference, isn't it? We know the difference. But the point here is the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Verse 11, um, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by. Some of us who have been walking with the Lord for a while probably might even be thinking about a period of time in your life where you probably are pretty consonant that you were under the disciplinary uh, work of the Lord. Um, I know I can point to seasons of my life where, yeah, I would have to say, yeah, uh, very much so. Let us not think that something strange is happening to us when we find ourselves in those kinds of situations because, in fact, to the contrary, let us... Let us, as painful as it can be, let us anticipate it with joy because God disciplines those whom he what? He loves. He loves. Now back to Psalm 6. David is not saying, Lord, rebuke me not, nor discipline me not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. It's the same thing that, that um, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah ten twenty four. He says, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. 
Now, what's going on here? David is finding himself in such an agonizing period that he's starting to maybe not be able to discern the difference between fatherly chastisement and God's wrath. In fact, he, it's, it, appears, it appears that he's starting to wonder, Lord, what's going on here? And he begins to describe his, his situation. Um, and, and before we go any further, just a little bit of theology here. Um, the idea was alive and well in antiquity that if you're going through a really sore trial, if something really bad has happened to you, then it must be because you have done some really bad sin. Let's think about Job for a minute. You know, in, in one afternoon, Job loses his children, he loses his servants, and he loses his business. Then he loses his health. And when his three friends come alongside of him, um, what do they consistently do throughout the book of Job? They can, they, 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 his friends can't even conceive that this, the only way that this could happen, something this tragic, something this dire, the only way this could happen is that Job must have secretly sinned against the Lord somehow. He must have secretly sinned against the Lord somehow. And of course, the reader of Job realizes that's not the case. That is not what has happened. And, and this, this theology is alive and well, even in, during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, because there's a story where Jesus and the disciples are going along, and they come across the man who was born blind, right? And what does Peter say to Jesus? Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus, what's he say? Neither. So we must never run off to the conclusion that when someone is suffering, they've committed some kind of sin, maybe secret, we don't know about, and that's what has caused this to come into their life. Now, it's a little bit, it's a little bit blurry. I mean, all tragedy is the result of, of our corporate rebellion against God. What I'm talking about is a, is a particular tragedy that befalls in someone's life. Let's not run to the conclusion that it's because they have committed some particular sin. Does that make sense? Now, there's a deep theological word that comes next. It's three letters, B-U-T, but. <laughs> We've learned how important that word is in many contexts, haven't we? But sometimes, sometimes this tragedy befalls us because of sin. If David is writing this as a result of, of Absalom, his son, rising up against him, okay, that is the result of David's sin, isn't it? David had committed, he, he had an affair with Bathsheba, who was the wife of one of his, really one of his most loyal soldiers. And then he murdered him to try to cover it up. And God comes to him, as he will come to all of his children when we sin, and he comes to him through the Nathan, of Pro Nathan the prophet. He convicts him of his sin. David confesses of his sin. He finds forgiveness in God. But God says to David, he says to David, the sword shall not depart from your house. So the situation with, with uh, David in this contest between Absalom, I can't imagine the, the anguish of your very own son wanting, wanting to be king and lusting for power so much he's willing to kill his father to get it. I just can't even get my mind around what kind of mental and emotional anguish that would be. 
It's hard to get our minds around that. Some of us may have to experience things that approach that. That's what Psalm 6 is about. What happens? But my point here is, David has brought some of this on himself in his life, and he knows it. And that could be what's in mind here when David says, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. He's not saying, don't, don't, Lord, don't rebuke me anymore. Don't discipline me anymore. He's okay with discipline. He's okay with rebuke. Just don't do it in your wrath, Lord. Don't destroy me is in essence what he's saying. But again, one little quick measure of theology, which is so comforting right now, is Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we're sitting here in church on Sunday morning, and we can go, yeah, that's right. No condemnation for those who are in Jesus. But when you find yourself tore down, almost level with the ground, it gets blurry. Because we get so weak. That's why we need training now. That's why we need training now. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Look at verse 2. Be gracious to me. Boy, doesn't that sound wonderful after looking at verse 1? Be gracious to me, O oh Lord. You know, grace is undeserved. <laughs> I deserve a rebuking, Lord. I deserve discipline. I actually deserve your wrath, but be gracious to me, Lord. Please be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O oh Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. The beginning of verse 3. Notice, David is talking about languishing. He's talking about healing. He's talking about his bones being troubled, his soul being troubled. This has led many commentators to believe that what David is going through is some kind of illness, an illness that is so severe that he's near death. And that could very well be the case. But I think it's too narrow to limit it to that. I think that's too narrow. In fact, I think one of the points here is that this psalm is broad. Let me give you an example. On Wednesday night at our men's meeting, we were praying for anybody in this area who might be thinking about taking their lives. And I had commented that when your emotional pain reaches a certain threshold, fellas, do you remember that conversation? When your emotional pain reaches a certain threshold, it's dangerous. When you don't feel like your emotional pain is reaching a certain point, and you don't feel like you can go another 10 minutes, well, then that's a dangerous spot to be in. And oftentimes, when someone is brought out of that, they describe that as healing, don't they? We've all done that. Oh, how the Lord has healed my soul. Who hasn't said that if you're in Christ? So we use the words healing to describe things that might not necessarily be physical. They might be physical. They might not be physical. But the, the psalm is not so explicit that it, 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 it's broad. It can, be, it can be widened to this. So we can come alongside someone who is suicidal. We can say, listen, I want to introduce you to Psalm 6. There's this guy named David, and he's on his face. I mean, look at how he's on his face. What a point of contact we might have with somebody in that time. Or that somebody could be us. And we can say, wait a second. What does the psalmist do when he finds himself like this? I don't know if I have the heart to look. I might not be able to pray, but I can read. And you can just simply read. 
you can read, oh, Lord, you can go down and you can read. And in reading, find maybe the, find maybe the strength just to utter a word. And maybe the words might just be, how long, Lord? Sometimes that's all we got. Because notice what David does in verse 3. He says, but you, O Lord. And notice how the sentence stops. This is such a, it's such literary genius that the Holy Spirit gives us right here. I mean, we look at that, and our English teacher looks at that and says, wait a second, where's my red pen? And they're ready to, ready to put some red ink around this. This is an incomplete sentence. That's the point. Don't correct it. Because the psalmist is in such, I mean, look at this. His bones are troubled. His soul is troubled. He's trying to get a sentence out, and he can't even get it all the way out. That's the point. He can't complete the sentence. He hardly has the heart to pray. He's describing his bones as troubling. The old preachers used to refer to bones as the stately part of manhood, you know. It's the stately part. Break your legs, and what do you do? You go to the floor. So his bone, but his bones, the stately part, the firm part, the, the, the skeletal part of his body is shaking. And look, his, his, his inner part, the soul, the inner man is also shaking. David is shaken to the core here. A fierce warrior. He's a warrior. Let's not forget that David is a man who take a sword and run at a bunch of other guys who's got swords running at him. There's probably no one in this room that would do that. David did that routinely throughout his life. And here he is, shaking, troubled. If we ever find ourselves in this, let us never say that we're cowards. David was no coward. Hardly the case. How long, O oh Lord, when you're in this kind of situation, a minute's like an hour, and an hour's like a day, and a day's like a week, a week's like a year, isn't it? I mean, we can look back on this. You know, I, I can look back on, on different times where I really, to my measure of faith, believe the Lord was disciplining me. In some cases, it was disciplining me for sin, I, I, no question. Other cases, I think he was exercising me like we exercise our bodies. Some of them may say, well, okay, how long? How long does this typically last? It lasts till it's done. I, 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 I think I can point, and I'm just, this is, this is just what I think to my measure of faith. I think I can point to times where maybe it lasted a month. I can point to another period where it lasted maybe 10 years. I really believe that. And as much as I didn't like that 10-year period, I'm thankful for it because I couldn't do what I do today had it not been for that. I think my wife is sitting there going, amen. <laughs> Let's not resist it because it's being done by a loving father, isn't it? He means us no harm, but to the contrary, he's making us fit to dwell with him for all eternity. It's not easy. You know, one of the reasons we don't want to punish little juniors is because it's hard, isn't it? If you find it easy to punish your kids, then you're not punishing them in the way you're supposed to be punishing them. You're not. That's, you're going about it the wrong way if you find it easy to do. If you're finding it very difficult to do, you know what I'm talking about. It's not easy to put, it's not easy to put a teenager in their room. Go to your room. It's easy at the start. Not easy to keep them there, is it? I used to think it was easy for my dad when he said, get to your room. Oh, I hated to hear that. I'd have rather had a beating any day of the week. 
Because this get to your room business, there was no time frame put on it. It was get to your room. It wasn't get to your room for an hour. Well, I could have done that. Get to your room for a day. All right. Okay, I can do that. But what my dad knew about me was boredom was one of the worst things. He knew that a beating, I would have welcomed a beating. Get it over with, man. <laughs> Go ahead. Do it. <laughs> I'd have been happy to have that. But this get to your room business, I used to think it was easy for him. He'd go to the garage, get busy, and forget about me, you know? That's what I used to think. Till one day I had to tell Samantha to get to her room. I didn't learn it till then, how hard it is to keep Samantha in her room. It's just not easy. Our Lord endures this for our good. He endures us. You see, we're blessed in ways, as I've said, we've been blessed in ways that we don't even... We don't even know about. You know, we're blessed in so many ways that we're not even aware of. I better keep moving. We're never going to get through Psalm 6. And there's only, someone's been, there's only 10 verses. 11, if you count the Hebrew. 10 verses here. David says in verse 4, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Let's not pass over that too quickly. Notice what he says here. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. What is David leaning on? Now, this is absolutely foreign to an unregenerate heart. This is absolutely foreign to a heart that hasn't been converted. Because what do we typically do when we're praying as unbelievers? Unbelievers pray. We prayed as unbelievers when we are in a jam. And how do we typically do it? Oh, Lord, uh, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I've always tried to blah, 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 right? We point to this imaginary merit that we think that we have achieved. We go to this imaginary treasury of merit, and to that treasury we go. Here, Lord, I've always tried to treat everybody like I treat myself. Yeah, sure you have. That's why you cut that guy off back there at the stop sign, because you were concerned about treating him the way. It's a bunch of blah, 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 isn't it? But in those moments, oh, we think we can, we think we can strengthen our prayer. Oh, Lord, I've always... Uh, Showed up for work on time. I've always done this. I have a perfect Sunday school attendance. Lord, I got the stars. I got the stars for five years. I got the stars for 10 years. David doesn't do that. David could have done that. David is described in Holy Scripture as a man after God's heart. He has fallen, but let's not forget, God himself describes David as a man after his own heart. David could have pointed to all of those battles he ran in for the glory of the Lord. I put my life on the line for your glory. That would have been a true statement. He doesn't point to these imaginary merits. He doesn't point to a one of them. He doesn't. He doesn't. Um, Calvin has a comment here. I got a couple of quotes from Calvin here. Listen to this one, and I know it would be easier if you had it in front of you. I don't like quotes for this reason, but I want to share a couple of these with you. He says, Men will never find a remedy for their miseries until forgetting their own merits by trusting to which they only deceive themselves. So what he's saying is you're, 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 that's where I'm getting the word imagine the merits from. We imagine that we have these merits with God. You know, Jesus tells us when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're only doing our what? Our duty. Why shouldn't we be doing what we're supposed to be doing? We were so fallen that we think when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, God owes us all this stuff. No, you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing. 
If you lived a perfect life, you'd be doing just what you're supposed to be doing. Oh, we thought if we could live a perfect day, God would owe us the heavens. Don't we? We got to get this out of our heads. Oh, we would think God would owe us the heavens, the moon, and the stars if we lived a perfect day. No, 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 no. Listen to Calvin here. Men will never find a remedy for their miseries until forgetting their own merits, they have learned to betake themselves to the free mercy of God. What's David doing here? It's covenantal. He says, Lord, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. We've looked at that, haven't we? Steadfast love. What is that? The word chesed is being translated. We have a song that we sing, right? Chesed love. What is that? NIV says unfailing love, right, Harry? Is it NIV? It says unfailing love. Unfailing love. Um, I prefer covenant love. It can be translated covenant love. Covenant love. That love that that love that um, God just will not bend from. What covenant love? The love that moves God to say to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make you great. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I'm going to bless all the families of this earth. In other words, I'm going to gather a people to myself, Abraham. This is what we're going to be on about. I'm going to gather a bunch of people to myself, and I'm going to make them my people, and I'm going to be their God, and I'm going to dwell with them. That's an expression of God's covenant love. And that's what David's appealing to here. In other words, he might as well just say, Lord, you're my God. That's what he said in Psalm 5, isn't it? He says, my king and my God. You're my God. I'm appealing to you on the fact that as my God, you have showered me with your steadfast love. You've called me to be one of your children. It's, it's, you know, we do this instinctively with our parents if the home is right, don't we? When something's wrong, we run right to our father. Now, why do we do that? Because he's our father. We could say, you're, you're, you're my father. We don't say that, but isn't it implied? You're my father. What do we expect? We, oh, we expect a fatherly care, don't we? A couple weeks ago, that, um, that dance uh, at Beaver Local, the father-daughter dance, you know, I, I wasn't sure about that. I, you know... <laughs> I hope sis don't mind me telling the story, but Samantha asked if we could watch Kylie for um, a few days. And we're like, yeah, that's no problem. Are you guys busy? Are you guys able to watch Kylie for a few days? We're going to go away. Yeah, you sure? We'll make it work. Just bring her over. We'll make it work. We'll make it happen. And it was a couple days later. Oh, there's this other thing. Um, can you take her to the father-daughter dance? And I will confess. I was like, ah, uh, when is this father-daughter dance? I had a blast at that father-daughter dance. I, I'll tell you what, you see so many things that are wrong with the culture, and you go to this father. There, the, the place was packed. It was so full in there, it took an hour. You, we stood in line for more than an hour to get our picture taken. Um, all of these fathers spending and giving their attention to their daughters for two or three hours. What, what could be wrong with that? It's wonderful. Um, we instinctively do this. Lord, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. But notice how David argues in verse 5. Verse 5 is tough. Look at verse 5. For in death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? 
What in the world is David saying? Now, some of, we might look at that and we might say, wait a second, is David denying that there's an afterlife? What is he saying? It sounds like it, don't it? In death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, Sheol is a word for the grave. It means grave. Other things, but in this context, certainly the grave. For in death, there's no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And this is why some people say, you know, see, the Bible contradicts itself all over the place. You'll hear people say stuff like that. Well, until we understand it, it seems like it contradicts himself. If we find two verses contradicting themselves, then we either do not understand one verse or we do not understand both verses. That makes sense? The Bible makes it very clear there is life after death, doesn't it? Jesus hanging on a cross, two criminals, famously, one of them next to him says, Lord, remember me when you come into my kingdom. That's repentance. That's an acknowledgement that Jesus is a king. It'd be a tough time to see Jesus as a king, wouldn't it? And Jesus says what to him? Think about how beautiful those words would be. I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's life after death. Okay, if there's life after death, and David is no way contradicting that, then what in the world is David saying with, in death, there's no remembrance of you, in Sheol, who will give you praise? The best way that I know to explain it is the way that I've, the way I understand this verse and the way I've worked through this verse is just to go out into the country and look at the old country church that's out in the country somewhere. You know, imagine this big, uh, this big uh, white frame building. Okay, you, you, you don't even need a church marquee to know it's a church. This architecture, you know, you drive down the road, they're everywhere, aren't they? You see them out there in the country, there they are, the big country church. And what's typically in the churchyard right next to it? The church cemetery. And in theology, we look at that and we say, okay, the church itself, which is not the building, the church itself is the people that occupy the building. In theology, we say that's the church militant. And when you walk through the grass out into the churchyard and you see the cemetery there, we say that's the church triumphant. Now, why the two terms? What are we doing right now? We're gathered together, right? We're praising the Lord. We're gathered together to worship the Lord. We're gathering together to return thanks to the Lord for the salvation that we that we've given. And we get we're blessed with God's presence. And as we're blessed blessed with God's presence, we go back into the world. And our, our mission is to go back into the world and reflect this glory and light. And as we do so, we are standing up against, militantly, if you will, against the forces of darkness in this evil world, aren't we? We are the church militant. But when we walk through, the, we, we leave the building and we walk through the grass out into the, out into the, the, the churchyard. Well, what do we have here? We have our fathers and and our mothers, and in some cases, our, our sons and daughters who have gone before us. And they are the church triumphant. They're no longer militant. In other words, they are no longer in this world proclaiming the gospel to the people of this world. No, they're, in, they're right before the presence of the Lord. Are they worshiping? You better believe they're worshiping. They're worshiping better than we can right now. Is their theology? It's better than ours right now. It, it's much better. They can see Jesus. They can see those holy angels. They can hear them proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty. They're falling on their faces as they say it. They're seeing all of that. They're praising. But when you work, when, you, when you're in this life and you walk out into that churchyard, you can't hear them, can you? 
can't hear him. And that's what David's pointing to. His argument is, there's no remembrance of you in death, in the grave, who will praise you? He's thinking of the here and now. And probably what's going on, he's going to mention enemies. He mentions foes in verse 7, work of of evil in verse 8, and enemies in verse 10. And what's probably going on is his enemies are gloating over him right now. They're gloating over him. What are they doing? They're, they're gloating over his, over, over his ailment, gloating over the fact that he's in this position, gloating over the fact that, look at you, where's your God? Now, think of Jesus when he's hanging on the cross. What did they do to Jesus? Come down from there and save yourself if you're the Son of God. They gloated over him. Come down from the cross and save yourself. And what is David jealous for? He wants to see God glorified. And his argument is, Lord, if you take my life now, I am not going to be able to glorify you in the assembly of the righteous here in this life. I'm not going to be able to do it. It's a powerful argument. He's arguing from God's glory. Lord, save me so that I might glorify you. Does that make sense? I know I ask that a lot in sermons. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? I just want to be sure it does. I want if it doesn't, you've got to go like this. You know, say, Rick, we'll stop here and we'll keep going. But I think it makes sense. This is a hard passage. Verses 6 and 7 we take together. He says, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Here you can see he's been crying profusely. And it's important to hold on to this detail in verse 6. Every night, this has been going on for a long time. I don't want anyone to read Psalm 6, and we don't want to read Psalm 6 and think that this deliverance comes immediately. Um, like, okay, you find yourself in this situation this afternoon, and by a sundown, you've found deliverance. Maybe it comes that way, but if it's God's disciplinary hand, if, it's God, if it really is that, it's unlikely that it's going, you're going to find relief that fast. Someone might say, well, when do we find relief? We find relief when God is done. When God is done. But notice David, is, he's just trying to describe his anguish, and he's saying, listen, I flood my bed with tears. Literally, the, the, in the Hebrew, it's I swim. And someone could, could, someone could say from that, I'm drowning in my tears. And that's a familiar phrase, isn't it? Think about how many songs that go like that. I'm drowning in my tears. We use that expression in our culture. I'm drowning in my tears. Think of that. I'm drowning here in my tears. Now, We've been given seven long verses to describe how David is feeling and where David is at. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. In verse 8, suddenly we hear David say, Depart from me, all you workers of evil. See the change in tone, like almost immediately? It's not a small thing, is it? I mean, there's such a clear division there. He's, he's been drowning. He's, he's drowning in his tears. But then all of a sudden, and he hardly has, he scarcely has a heart to pray. But then all of a sudden, he makes he says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. By the way, Jesus picks up this phrase, doesn't he, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Lord, you know, in the last days, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, do we not blah, 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 blah. And Jesus says, what? Depart from me, you workers of evil. Or depart from me, you men of lawlessness. David is saying, depart from me, all you workers of evil. Where is, this, where, where is this strength coming from? Where does this suddenly come from? Answer, he has heard the sound of my weeping. He has heard my plea. He accepts my prayer. 
threefold. Oh, my father sees my weeping. He sees my condition. He's heard my plea. He accepts my prayer. That's where the relief comes from. This is what we need to hold on to, isn't it? He says, verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame. This is what leads us to believe that that his enemies are taunting him. You know, his enemies are saying, oh, there's no salvation for you and God. Who knows what all they're saying? They're probably saying all, all kind of things like this. And that's why David says, listen, for your glory, Lord, save me so that I can proclaim something opposite to this. So I can set this right, so I can praise you. David's not afraid to die. How could David be afraid to die being the warrior that he was? That's, that's what leads me to believe that he's jealous for God's glory here. Now, in closing, what do we say? Another quote from Calvin, Calvin I'm going to leave you with. Calvin says, this passage teaches us that the grace of God is the only light of life to the godly. And that as soon as he has manifested some token of his anger, they're not only greatly afraid, but also, as it were, plunged into darkness of death. Well, let's think that through. Let me put that into other words. This passage teaches us that the grace of God is the only light of life. Okay. But as soon as, as, soon as the godly have some inkling that God is meeting them with their wrath, as David has here, rebuke me not in your, in your, uh, in your anger, Lord, um, discipline, nor discipline me in your wrath. What's David thinking? Wow, this is so severe right now. Lord, what are you doing? Have I, lo- have I lost it? Have I lost my salvation? It's, it's, it, people suffer enough. Faithful, we can suffer enough where we can actually begin to question our salvation. That seems to be where David is at. And Calvin is saying this passage teaches us that the grace of God is the only light of life to the godly. As soon as he has manifested some token of his anger, we're not only afraid, but plunged into the darkness of death. While on the other hand, and this is what I want to leave you with, As soon as they discover anew that God is merciful to them, they are immediately restored to life. As New Testament readers, when we look at this passage, we could look at passages like, Lord, you've promised never to depart from me. When you commissioned me to go into this dark world and proclaim your glories, you said, listen, behold, I am with you what? Always to the end of the age. Lord, it doesn't feel like you're with me. It feels like you're meeting me with your wrath, but you've promised. You've promised to be with me always. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this great psalm, Lord, that picks us up when we're tore down so low that we could sing with Freddie King. We're almost level with the ground. Maybe we should sing with Freddie King. Well, Father... We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a psalm. You've given us a psalm, O oh Lord. You've given us words when we, can, when we scarcely have the words to pray. O oh, Father, maybe we're not going through a time like that right now. Maybe we are. Father, if we are, we pray that you administer this, this word, Father, to our hearts. Father, if we're not, we pray that, Lord, you would train us. Train us for the day when we may find ourselves um, in a situation that brings us... Um, to a depth that could be described this way, Father. Either way, Lord, we know you're always with us, even to the end of the age, and may we, may we preach that to ourselves continually. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.